Welcome to Coffee House. This is the Tyranny of Big Tech Part 2 by Senator Josh Hawley. If you didn't see the first part, the first part came out, uh, I think, last week. But have a look at that one first. I mean, there aren't going to be... Spo- it's not like you need the first part to be able to get the second, so it, it, you can listen to that whenever. But this is Part 2. So we will, of course, go through the contents, and then we will do an analysis where we talk about the value of the book, the good and the bad, and then we're going to do a big-picture wrap-up of the whole thing, try to integrate it into our understanding of the world. So The Tyranny of Big Tech by Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, Part 2, The Censors. So Big Tech was a movement and did the same things simultaneously. You had different tech companies who were converging on the same ideas and banning the same people at the same times. They began using power to help bring policy into reality. They had a a shared vision to change society. You can remember the quaint days of tech companies just trying to make money, but nowadays they had a broader vision. Josh Hawley talks about how he spoke with Mike Gilgan, who knew about all the teams at Facebook. He had intimate knowledge of these things, and he described the different systems that they used related to censorship and how they coordinated with other tech companies. So there was this task system where employees would be able to enter tasks that they wanted to get done, and they would have other people who would take up the tasks or comment on them. And a lot of times it was within these systems where many of the censorship decisions were made. People just post that they wanted somebody to be censored who was on the platform, and that's where it would start and eventually be carried out. Sometimes the tasks themselves just named specific individuals that they wanted banned. And they had a bias problem. One thing that we know, that I'm I'm sure Holly mentions it, but one thing we know apart from the book, is that there is a, a huge bias when it comes to the political contributions of employees at these tech companies. Now, it splits slightly differently among some of them, but when it comes to the Silicon Valley tech companies, it's upwards of 90, 95 or more percent that donate to Democrats in election years. And when they would use a third-party source to try to figure out who they, they should ban or who was engaging in hate speech or who was engaging in misinformation, they would use biased sources. So sources like the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is extremely biased in its coverage and its uh, positions on public figures. But even internally, just amongst the the staff at these tech companies, they were dominated by far-left content. So, like, at Facebook, there there was one regular thread wherein they talked about burning the American flag on every 4th of July. And the person who had knowledge about the internal Facebook structure talked about how they would coordinate with Google and Twitter, other massive tech companies. And there was even a thread that was openly just discussing how to coordinate with those tech companies when it came to preventing the spread of misinformation or banning certain people. And so it makes perfect sense that they would, they would tend to converge on these things around the same times. There's also this program called Centra, which would follow a person around all of the internet to try to gather more information about you. And now today we get, I get the pop-up, you know, every day when I go on to, I open an app or something like that, it'll ask me whether I want the app to track me across other apps. And Josh Hawley, because he learned this from an insider, he asked Mark Zuckerberg about it in a hearing and whether Zuckerberg and Facebook coordinated at all with Twitter and Google. And Zuckerberg just kind of vaguely stated that he assumes that the Facebook employees would talk to their peers in the industry. He didn't explicitly say that they did. And when asked about Centra specifically, Zuckerberg just said that he wasn't familiar with the name. 
but you would have these curators who would intervene just depending on a whim. So they, they could come in and, and change the way that content was distributed and who was on the platform and all that kind of thing, and they would just do it on a whim. They even did positive injections for things that they believed that people should care about more. So, like, BLM got injected into topics, rather than being part of a natural algorithmic response. The tech companies would start to impose social preferences on its users. So Facebook itself was not honest about what it was doing. After 2016, Zuckerberg said he would crack down on fake news. And they changed the algorithm to favor news sources that are, quote, trusted. And what happened, uh, as reported by Newswhip, which was uh, monitoring kind of the effect of these policies, was that mainstream media got a huge boost and then conservative media got hit hardest. For some, dropping as much as 55% when it came to engagement. And Google did the same. So they held these corporate-wide sympathy sessions after 2016. I remember stories about this. But there was this one guy, Robert Epstein, who was looking at the way that search was manipulated by Google. He was a, a leftist. He was a liberal Democrat. But he wanted to just research, okay, what happens? What is Google doing when it comes to elections? Because Google has this monopoly on search. So he found in 2014, so this is before the, the whole Trump shift in reality, but Epstein found that Google was able to manipulate just by changing the order of search results. Google could change the way that people thought about different things. And this is just changing the order of search results because most people only look at the first page, you know, especially, but usually just the first handful of re results as opposed to mining through all the rest of them to get information. But he found that there was a pronounced bias in favor of Clinton around that time and estimated that Google likely nudged 2.6 million voters to Clinton and may have shifted in the aggregate about 78 million toward Democrat Party candidates in 2018. Even just autocomplete, what autocompletes when you start typing something in has a nudge effect. And it can change issues that would usually be about 50-50. It can change them to 90-10, just the kinds of autofill options that pop up when you start typing. So, for instance, Clinton had very few negative autocompletes that would show up on Google searches, whereas Trump would have lots of negative autocompletes that would show up. And of course, this all happened to coincide with the political preferences of the employees at these places. But there was this big shift uh, that people that was slow, but people didn't realize from the regular news sources that one would have to social media, which really changed the way that people do news. Like Apple, for instance, is supposed to be the sophisticated one of the major tech companies, but the way that it set up its news option, so it has it takes a fifty percent cut of whatever goes through its its store and its app in Apple News Plus, and it would retain all the the subscription info of the customers that were partaking in the, the various news options. So this really changed when you're getting your news from social media, when Apple's taking a big cut like this and everybody's going through tech mediators, it really changed journalism so that they had to have shorter kinds of stories and tinge with more controversy to be able to make up for the amount that they would otherwise be getting. The New World Order is the next section. It talks about globalism and how big tech specifically is multinational in character, as opposed to other kinds of businesses that could be more local in character. When you have something like a farm or a real estate business or something like that, it can have an interest in the locality and where it is, and it's bound by that kind of a thing, but big tech companies aren't bound in the same way. 
They pay next to nothing in United States taxes. It's an industry that's desperate to do business in China. And we saw this in another book that we read, the book specifically about China and the, the ties that it has to many of our elites. But a lot of the tech company leaders, especially like Zuckerberg, have talked favorably about the way that they do things in China. And a lot of the tech companies, they just buy out competitors. Whenever a competitor arises, they'll buy them out. And they're seeking the maximum market penetration all over the world. The physical boundaries are unimportant to them, and that's why, politically, it doesn't make sense for them to take much of an interest in maintaining national sovereignty. So their commitment is to returns instead of investment. They have minimal capital investment in domestic markets, and they make money off of advertisers. Since China went permanent, normal trade in around 2000, Americans have lost 3 million jobs to China. Then you have this Google monopoly where they act as the buyer and seller. They're getting a cut of both sides of a transaction. The EU actually fined Google because of their kind of monopolistic practices. When Facebook was first coming onto the stage, when MySpace was still around, one of its major tenets was saying that it would be all over the privacy question. It would make sure that your information is kept private, and it became just the opposite of that. And instead, it started mining all the data and using it to make lots and lots of money, paying in the process $5 billion in fees for the kinds of violations it engaged in. But again, it just planned to buy competitors. It's a lot of things that these major tech companies do, just buy competitors. In 2019, it was under investigation again for the acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp. And there's a concern with the App Store, the Apple App Store being a closed universe. You know, Android's open, but there's still this gated mechanism for being able to access uh, this kind of information. And there are internal means by which these big tech companies maintain their monopolistic practices, such as Apple, they were sued by Spotify for the kinds of practices that they use to curb competition in its Apple store. Amazon does a similar thing, wherein they take the brands that are sold by sellers on their store, and they'll make their own version and then undercut the price of that brand, especially when it comes to staples. Not like state like... <laughs> For paper staples, staples like things that everybody needs. Amazon makes their own brands of those things. And you'll see it in a lot of different categories. You know, whenever I go to buy office equipment or something like that, then you'll see the Amazon basic version of that thing that's a little cheaper than all the other ones, the other sellers who are on the platform. And then Holly criticizes Yang's plan of universal basic income, the former presidential candidate. Andrew Yang. The plan for universal basic income, he criticizes it as uh, universal dependence on government. And that that is the actual point. So rigging Washington, this is about how the big tech companies have kind of maneuvered in Washington to get the place that they have. And he brings up the Communications Decency Act, uh, which is something that's been in the news repeatedly. But the whole point of it, it was written a long time ago, passed a long time ago. But the point was to protect children from obscene materials. That was the point. The problem was that if somebody like a tech company, if it goes in and tries to edit something that's on one of their sites, then it would seem to become a publisher because it's determining what the content is of what's on their site. So what Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act does is it gives it special protection, gives tech companies protection, or just media companies in general, that if they edit this kind of thing, like taking off obscene materials, then it doesn't make them a publisher, so they don't become liable for things like libel. 
But over time, the nature of the act has been diluted by interpretation, you know, as it's gone through the courts, and the whole immunity provision has been broadly applied. So you have tech companies today who are doing a lot of content editing, but not considered publishers, and they're not subject to lawsuit, you know, for the kinds of things that show up on their platforms. So really, they're getting the best of all worlds right now, and that's a problem. So then Holly talks about uh, how he and his wife deal with their kids when it comes to the uses of devices and technology, and he just suggests that prevent them from using it altogether. Don't give children smartphones. He suggests having more community-based parties and community-based gatherings just in general so that people have that kind of interaction much more than they have the kind of online interaction. And he had to temper his own addiction to Twitter, and that's something that he only gives himself a certain amount of time to look at it, and otherwise he's taking care of the family. And then he has a whole section about how to push back against big tech, that their special protections need to be abolished, that the addiction business model has to be changed because that's what their business model is based on right now is addiction. It's trying to make people addicted because the more time they can get your eyeballs on their product, the more time they can get your eyeballs on advertisers, which makes them more money. Curb the abuses of social media that target young. So this would be something like cigarettes. You know, cigarettes used to be marketed to everybody and to young, especially because that's a, a longer time horizon of earnings that you can get out of a younger person. But so Holly talks about how you need to curb the abuses of social media that target the young. So when they're trying to get more young people to be more addicted to the product, you have to do what you can to prevent them from being able to do that. Prevent Google from being on both sides of transactions, you know, being the buyer and the seller of ads. And there's this kind of curious situation wherein people have flocked to ad-free experiences in streaming, you know, when it comes to TV and when it comes to movies, but not in social media. Social media gets really low favorability scores, how much people actually like the social media, but people don't have a real choice, according to Holly. It's like a monopoly. He suggests that Google should be forced to give up YouTube, that that kind of a, a merger, that kind of a partnership is too monopolistic for it to continue. He says conglomerate mergers should be illegal. You can't have all of the above at once. So all the different aspects of an industry, you can't own all those things and be operating at the same time. Those things have to break apart so they're not monopolies. End immunity for any companies who are using behavioral ads that use individual data to try to manipulate individuals. So that's a really interesting idea because you'd have to distinguish between the kinds of ads that are just, you know, the regular kinds of ads and the kinds of ads that are targeted to specific individuals based on their specific data. He suggests that there should be a do not track right that you should be able to turn on by a click. So in any kind of social media company, you should be able to just click this one thing that says you don't get to track anything about me. You know, you just have to treat me as a tabula rasa and, and we can go from there. And be able to request that big tech delete your information that is on file with them. So any information they have, you should have some recourse to be able to tell them, I don't want you to have this anymore, delete it. And raise the minimum age that you have to be to be able to use social media from 13 to 16. And you have to verify that age. You know, you don't just ask them, are you this age? And they say yes. You have to verify what their age is to be able to use social media accounts. And he reiterates that girls are most affected by these things. So it should be especially targeted in that direction. So on to the analysis. <laughs> 
This is a politician's perspective, so it's not especially deep or philosophical. It's very practical at the end. I loved the end part where he's actually talking about actions that could be taken against these social media companies and big tech in general. So whatever my reservations about motivating interests, these are some excellent ideas to be able to curb tech. I mean, just forcing Google and YouTube to separate would be amazing. This idea of limited, limiting the use of behavioral ads is great. The option to be able to not track your information. All that's wonderful stuff. Uh, we'll talk about some of the concerns on the other side. But big tech is a unique threat, but it is diminishing over time. It's kind of the law of persuasion entropy. It's just like an advertising whatever era that people try to manipulate people into doing other things. You can't use the same tricks forever. The same tricks start to dull their effect over time. But these tech companies, they have global scope. They're not bound geographically. They have no allegiances. Their currency is the data. And their entire drive is understanding how to manipulate you in more and more effective ways. And it's much more likely that these will be used for illicit authoritarian purposes at some point than just, you know, trying to sell you more paper towels or something like that. Because it has an automatic global scope, because it's not bound geographically, because it doesn't need an allegiance with any particular country, and because it has an interest in trying to manipulate you in the most efficient way possible while gaining access to as much information about you as possible. All those things are just a recipe for, you know, the kinds of disaster that you see in those dystopias of yore. But big picture-wise, undermining tech power is in the government interest. You know, some part of the government is interested in being able to undermine and regulate the power of these corporations. And just decentralizing power is generally good, whether it's in corporations or it's in the government. So you have to pay attention to both sides of the equation. Because, yeah, it would be great if our politicians were just pure altruism and didn't have any interests on their own and didn't have any interest in just aggrandizing the government in general to their benefits and their donors' benefit. If the government gets to regulate these tech companies, what does that mean? That means that the government's going to have a lot more leverage over them and that means the tech companies are going to have to up whatever means they have to be able to benefit these politicians, which might mean more money in politics. So there are a lot of, there are multiple sides to this that you have to be aware of. Anti-globalism is in the interests of some segment of the government. Remember the, the people who are politicians in our government, who are senators or members of the House or the president or whoever, they can have some kind of interest in maintaining American power because they're part of American power. So they have that interest. It dovetails automatically. But when it comes to globalist politicians, if they already have their tendrils in foreign markets, in foreign governments, such as Biden in China, or the kind of laundering, money laundering that's going on in Ukraine, if they already have those tendrils out there, then it's in their interest to increase globalization. And that means more likely that we're going to have more centralized power in a more powerful entity that's outside of the United States, which again is a problem. So there are there are some leaders, you know, I still I saw another video of Georgia Maloney in Italy who was talking about how France is looting African countries and how they'll go in there and take 50% of whatever comes out of the ground, all these natural resources that are in Africa, and she was decrying that as, you know, villainous and wrong and that the African countries rather than them trying to migrate to western countries, give them the chance to be able to develop their resources and build infrastructures without a bunch of Western countries with their hands in their pockets. 
like I was saying, you just you have to look at both sides of the equation. I love so much of everything that Josh Hawley had to say in this thing. And I think, especially at this point in history, it needs to be taken to heart and effectuated. But once we get past this point in history, then we need to turn it back the other direction and make sure these politicians aren't just trying to aggrandize their own political power over private entities. And that's the battle that we're all contributing to. But like I said, before we even get there, yeah, we have to be very, very worried about uh, the way tech companies are functioning right now because it's completely unprecedented to have these kind of monopolies that are this intimately involved in the way that people think and all the information about an individual person. This is completely new. So anyway, that was uh, The Tyranny of Big Tech by Josh Hawley. It was definitely a good read. I would recommend it if you want to better understand the way that things are going and what we need to be doing going forward. And uh, I think, I'm not sure, but I don't think that we're going to have an episode on Thursday because it's a holiday and I'm going to try to be, you know, focused and attentive on family-related things. But I hope as well. I hope you have a good holiday and I will see you next week. All right, bye. (laughs) 